1: He tēnei, nā te reo o
2: Kia ora, and welcome to the third season of Black Sheep. Now, the first episode this year is a bit of an experiment. Instead of doing our usual thing, which is, you know, me sitting in the studio, we decided to head out for a road trip and do the show in front of a live audience. So, a couple of weeks ago, we went up to a restaurant in Paihia called Charlotte's Kitchen. And the reason we went there is because that restaurant is named after the black sheep we wanted to talk about a woman called charlotte badger who may have been one of the very first european women to live in new zealand Uh, she may also have been a pirate because we recorded this in a restaurant you're probably gonna hear a bit of sort of clanking and murmuring going on from the diners and look i really hope you like this special episode but if not don't worry your usual black sheep service will resume next week anyway here's our investigation into charlotte badger the mysterious pirate recorded live from Charlotte's kitchen. Just to give a quick trace before we get started, just to give you sort of the, you know, real short version of Charlotte Badger. Charlotte Badger was a convict who came from Britain to Australia and then supposedly was involved in a mutiny aboard a ship called the Venus, which then sailed here to the Bay of Islands, where she's said to have lived for much of the rest of her life. That story is a little bit contentious and we're going to get into why in just a minute but one of the really interesting things about the story is that it keeps being reinterpreted over the years Um, so I've got a few different things I've got a uh, play here and there's this book which is supposedly by a descendant of hers we can't quite verify that but this play we thought it might be fun to um, take an extract from it and get a few of our mates together at RNZ and voice it up for you and I'm just going to warn you This gets extremely R18, extremely quickly. So if there's anyone here who doesn't want to hear that, stick your fingers in your ears, and and for those people who are listening at home, if there are kids listening, just take them away from the radio for a little bit. Here we go. This is from uh, Vagabonds, which is a play by Lorraine Parry. And just to set the scene, this starts on the Venus just before the mutiny, and you're going to hear the story, or one story, of the mutiny. Tableau, at the back of the stage, are three people. Charlotte, a convict woman, is in the middle. On one side of her is Catherine Haggerty, another female convict, and on the other side is Ben Kelly, first mate of the Venus. Ben has one hand on Charlotte's breast and the other hand up her skirt.
1: Ooh, 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 little to the left, Ben. Ooh, ooh, that's right. Up a bit. Ooh, down a bit. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. What you say we truss him up tonight?
0: Truss who up?
1: The captain. What you say we truss the captain up?
0: Oh, that's a juicy piece of pussy, Charlie. (laughs) Tie him
1: to the mast bin. Aye, take him by surprise. Strike
2: while the pot is hot. (laughs) Ben puts his head under Charlotte's dress and disappears.
1: He won't know whether he's coming or going. What do you think, Ben? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think he's partial to the idea.
2: A door opens and a shaft of light streams in. The captain of the passenger ship Venus enters. He is backlit And his presence is ominous. He is an English man of stature and authority. His dress is immaculate. He holds a whip. His voice is chilling.
0: Are you forgetting your post, Mr. Kelly? My post, sir, (laughs) is properly manned. Get off those slags. Sir.
2: Ben stands up. The captain grabs Charlotte by the hair, pulling her head back.
0: I'll teach you to lead my lads astray, Badger. A few days in the dark will douse your stinking spirits. F*** off! Oh, you cussing little piece of whoredom. You think spreading your legs and whispering insurrection will do you any good? Get that filth out of here and get rid of that sprog as well. Lash this lady, Kelly, or you'll find yourself in the dung pit. <laughs> what? Talking about shite, sir. I think it's you that's in for the long drop.
2: <laughs> what? Doors locked, sir. Charlotte takes the captain's whip, a cat o' nine tails, and stands in front of him like a dominatrix.
1: Mind if I oblige, Ben?
2: <laughs> She's very
1: good at it, sir.
2: Oh, please, uh...
1: Please, don't hurt me. I will be gentle, but you have been a bad boy, haven't you?
2: Despite himself, the captain is terrified and aroused at the same time.
1: I said, haven't you? Y- yes.
0: Yes, I-, I have.
1: And you deserve to be punished, don't you? Yes. Yes, I, I do. Tell the gentleman of the jury what a bad boy you've been. I said tell him. Do what a lady says. Do it.
0: I I deserve to be whipped, madam. Oh. Oh.
2: So now that we've made you all thoroughly uncomfortable, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, as I say, that's, that's one account of the story and we're going to hear uh, another possibly more historically accurate version of the story in a second. But first, um, let's introduce our two guests tonight. On my left, we have Kate Martin, who is the curator of the Russell Museum. And even further to my left, we have Jennifer Ashton, who is a Charlotte Badger researcher. So please a warm welcome to both of them. So I guess the first question, and I'll, I'll I guess who, who should I put this out? I'll put it to, I'll I'll put it at Jennifer. What do we know about who Charlotte was and where she came from? At least at least initially, at first.
3: So uh, what we can be fairly confident of is um, that Charlotte Badger was born I think in 1778 uh, in a place called Bromsgrove, which is. Um, back then was a small village outside Worcester. It's now kind of part of the larger Birmingham uh, conurbation, but it's you know it's still there. Uh, and um, very much very much still there and it has a lovely high street. She was born into the absolute kind of bottom rung of English society. Her, her father was a labourer uh, and in, I think 1796. She uh, committed a crime of housebreaking, and she broke into I, I think her employer's house, which I guess is never a particularly smart thing to do. Um, and she stole a, a, a few items, including a silver coin. And she was then convicted at Worcester Summer Assizes, uh, and like all, like all, basically, just about all property thieves. She was um, initially sentenced to death because uh, under the criminal code in the the UK at that time, property crimes were reviewed extremely seriously, so they became capital offences. But again, like most people, she had that sentence commuted to seven years' transportation beyond the sea. So she was then uh, sentenced to seven years' transportation to New South Wales and she arrived in Sydney um, in 1801. Then she kind of disappears um, until 1806. She doesn't commit any further crime, she's a very typical convict. She, she commits a property crime, she's transported for seven years, she goes to Sydney, she apparently commits no further crimes. So in, in a lot of ways Charlotte Badger is a very typical Australian convict.
2: But then we get to the really untypical part of the story which is where this sort of famous pirate story comes from and the first hint we get of that is a sort of, um, it's a bit like a wanted notice it ends up in the Sydney Gazette which is basically the government run newspaper and we've actually got an extract of it which I'll get Adam to read here.
0: The persons undermentioned and described did on the 16th day of June 1806 by force of arms and violently and piratically take away from His Majesty's settlement of Port Dalrymple a colonial brig or vessel called the Venus. Benjamin Burnett Kelly, Chief Mate, five foot seven inches pockmarked thin visage brown hair auburn whiskers
2: so this list goes on and on it sort of describes all of the different um, people aboard the ship and then right down the bottom
0: Catherine Haggerty
2: convict middle sized, fresh
0: complexion, much inclined to smile (laughs) hoarse voice Charlotte Badger, convict, very corpulent, full face, thick lips, infant child.
2: So, this is the only physical description we ever get of Charlotte Badger, and you may have noticed that that description does not match that photo on the wall at all. So, and it's kind of weird in a way, because... If someone has been transported and then working in the female factories in Australia, you wouldn't even think of them getting enough food to be very corpulent. But it's sort of just one of those weird oddities.
3: It is is weird. Um, I think we have to bear in mind, though, that our idea of corpulent and an early 19th century idea of corpulent are not the same thing. I'd like to say that
4: by 1806... Charlotte Badger has had four years in prison in Worcester and six years as a convict in the women's factory in New South Wales. Ten years. And by the time they mutiny on the Venus, she's only 28 years old. So think about that. Who is this person? What's the real one?
2: So what happens on the Venus? We get quite a few different account, accounts of, and they were sort of compiled together about 90 years after the fact in a newspaper called The Evening Post, which is an Australian newspaper. And I'll just get Adam to read a bit of that, but this is slightly earlier on when we first get a little bit of a, little bit of a hint that not everything is going totally smoothly aboard the Venus.
0: Captain Chase had been ashore, and about dusk, was returning in his boat to the ship when he heard sounds of great hilarity proceeding from those on board. On coming alongside and and gaining the deck, he found that the two convict ladies were entertaining Mr. Kelly with a dancing exhibition. Lying around the deck in various stages of drunkenness were the convicts and some of the crew, and Mr. Kelly presided over a bucket of rum, pannikins of which were offered to the ladies at frequent intervals. Mr. Chase at once put an end to the harmony by seizing the bucket of rum and throwing it overboard, and the drunken people about him being incapable of offering much resistance, where he put them in irons and tumbled them below. Kelly, who was a big, truculent looking man, then produced a bowie knife of alarming dimensions and challenged chase to combat, but was quickly awed by a pistol being placed at his breast by his superior officer.
2: (laughs) So we get a kind of idea for what the atmosphere might have been like on the Venus in the lead up to the mutiny. There's a bit of messing around going on. The first mate is obviously not keeping order on the ship very well. In fact, quite the opposite.
3: The interesting thing about that story um, is that if you read the original deposition by the captain, Captain Chase... They leave Sydney at the end of April 1806. They spend uh, five weeks in Twofold Bay, which is just a bit south. And in his deposition, he says, yeah, he's worried that things are a a little bit out of control. He's worried that the crew are possibly going to mutiny. He sends word back to the owner of the ship that um, he can't entirely guarantee the safety of the ship. But at that point, he's pointing the finger squarely at Kelly and the crew. And then that story, um, which Adam just read out, is from 1895. And that's the first indication that the women are actually, well, Charlotte Badger's involved. Because in Chase's original deposition, he kind of points the finger at, at Catherine Haggerty. She throws a box of papers overboard. So she's a bit of a troublemaker, but actually Charlotte Badger doesn't figure at all. And then in 1895, we get this account, and, then all, and now Charlotte's kind of implicated. So each time the story is retold, Charlotte Badger's role is amped up.
2: Yeah.
3: But originally, she's kind of pretty quiet. Yeah. You've got to realise the, the mutiny happened
4: in a port, little tiny wee place, 1806. Like This is pioneer frontier stuff in Tasmania. And, and their HQ is a million miles away, or so it seems, in New South Wales, Port Jackson, which we know as Sydney today. So it takes several weeks for the news to get from Tasmania to New South Wales to be digested, written up and put in the Sydney Gazette. So about a month after, which is to me the nearest um, record we have to actually what happened on the day, we get the depositions that Jennifer's talking about, and they say, this morning, proceeded down the river, eh, 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 but about 10 o'clock, five seamen belonging to the Venus had been forcibly turned out by the first mate, Kelly. Now, Kelly and Catherine Haggerty are cohabiting, which is tut-tut stuff. So it was Kelly who's the first mate, the pilot David Evans and Richard Thompson a private of the New South Wales cause it is not the convicts doing the mutiny not the convicts so and then they say that Kelly Evans and Thompson had knocked down and confined the second mate and taken the brig out to sea that Kelly was armed with a musket Evans with a pistol and Thompson was at the helm nobody talks about a bowie knife yeah Nobody talks about girls dancing.
2: <laughs> and then again, if we, go, if we go back to this 1895 news article, which, as we've said, is one step in the amping up of the um, role of these two convict women. So this is from the moment that the, um, that the people who were put off the Venus come ashore and tell the whole story to the captain about what's gone on. In a few moments they told their story, which was that just after the ship got underway, Kelly and the convicts sprang upon the second mate, stunned him and pitched him below. Then, before the crew, who were not in league with the mutineers, could offer any resistance, they were set upon by the pilot, Thompson the soldier, Dara the cook, and the two women, all of whom were armed with pistols and swords. So in that account we have the women being armed with pistols and swords. But, as you say in the original deposition... Yeah. Nothing of the sort. And then
3: in, in 1937, it gets even better because in the Sydney Morning Herald women's supplement, of all places, you get the story, which I think you, you probably find in, in the vagabonds play, where all of a sudden Charlotte Badger is the instigator. She's kind of got this poor man Benjamin Kelly, you know, under her spell, and he's completely, you know, hopeless and helpless, you know, under under her control. And she's driving it, and she's you know she's kind of saying like in the in the play, come on, Ben, let's you know let's take it on. Um, and when they get out to sea, she's in command.
2: So I want to come back to this question about sort of how the story evolves over time. But I guess we should get back to the the narrative, which is that the Venus sails off into the distance. Now from from this point it gets really hard to tell exactly what happens to people aboard the Venus because we don't have the advantage of the people getting put off the boat and saying, oh, I saw this, I saw that. Our accounts get a lot more tricky, but according to the story as it's traditionally told, and it's backed up by a lot of stuff, it ends up right here in the Bay of Islands. In fact, if you look out that way, you can see the spot where the Venus is said to have ended up. So what happens next, as far as we can tell? Okay, so...
3: Uh, the story, as as is generally told, is that the the Venus comes into the bay. Uh, it drops off four people: um, Badger, Haggerty, Kelly, and a convict called John William Lancashire, and Charlotte's daughter. Uh, so four adults and a, and the child, and they get dropped off at the bay and. The story is, uh, according to Samuel Marsden, as recorded by Samuel Marsden during his um, trip, first trip, that the Venus then carries on down the coast. It picks up some local Maori women. It goes down to I think Mercury Bay, gets involved in you know local trouble down there, and disappears. So uh, then, at the beginning of eighteen o seven, there are reports again in the Sydney uh, Gazette that from two ships, the Commerce and the Elizabeth, who have apparently come into the Northern Bay of Islands, they bring back stories of what's happened to the convicts. So apparently Lancashire and Kelly are taken away uh, on uh, two ships, the Britannia, either the Britannia or the brothers, um, and their justice is, is delivered upon them and they're, they're are hanged. Catherine Haggerty has died And Charlotte Badger is still living here with her daughter. And the captain of the Elizabeth, a really well-known whaling captain called Iba Bunker, offers her passage back to Sydney. And she says, no, I'd rather stay here. Um, And that's kind of, yeah, Mm. that's sort of the sum total of of what's known about it. And these
2: wouldn't have been the only Europeans here at the time. Just to set the scene a bit, there are quite a few... Um, Pākehā living in the Bay of Islands of yeah. this peri- in this period.
3: That's right, and, and Iba Bunker actually says that there are eight or nine European men living in huts which have been built by Kelly in Lancashire, and they, they've come from another, another boat. One
4: of them is the famous Pākehā Māori called George Bruce, who is well documented, and to me the really interesting side of this is we're talking about 1805, 1806, 1807, Samuel Marsden, who has been mentioned, has done a visit here. He has not set up a colony or a missionary, and he doesn't do that till 1814. So the official version of New Zealand history is the first European settlement in New Zealand was at Rangihaua, December 1814. Now, we have already got all these lists of people living here as Pākehā, from at least 1806 and some of them are are here earlier go figure
2: Mm. so i mean the reality of life for these people is they would have been totally dependent on maori i mean not only for permission to live here but also for basically everything yeah yeah and the interesting thing is that we've checked in with local hapu to see if there are any stories about charlotte badger and there's nothing there is absolutely nothing about Charlotte Badger or anyone matching her description in this area at all.
4: In this picture that we have for Charlotte's Kitchen, which is a lovely artwork, but a complete nonsense, this is not the corpulent 28-year-old mother-of-one... This is actually modelled by Alicia Courtney, and I hope she's listening, who lives in Moriwa. Okay. She is slim, beautiful. She's Kira Knightley doing, you know, Johnny Depp's other part in the, in, the, in the movies. She's got tattoos and she's got... She is wearing a shark's tooth earring. She's wearing a huya head for an earring. These are the symbols of rangatira. Charlotte Badger is a riffraff. She's a convict. And Maori here would know that so they wouldn't remember her. Why would they? She's not useful. But if she has survived for two years, which we know at least, at the Tapuna Inlet, and we're talking from the ship's records of people visiting, then she is being useful to local Maori. I don't know what she's doing though.
2: So the interesting thing is that this is pretty much the last we hear of Charlotte Badger in New Zealand but we do get a really interesting yeah. sighting of her elsewhere in the Pacific.
3: Yeah, so that that story um, comes from the 1895 article that Adam read out. Um, and as far as I can tell, it originates with a guy called Louis Beck, and he writes that in 1826, a ship called the, the Lafayette... Um, goes to a, an island, which I think is uh, called Ata in in the Tonga group, and he meets with a Hawaiian guy. Uh, and this Hawaiian from Oahu says, you're the only the second ship ever to come to this island. The first ship was about 10 years ago, and it brought a woman from New Zealand. She was escaping the Maori in New Zealand, and she was... He described her as being stout, and he described her as having a daughter. So that physical description matches, uh, you know, the description of Charlotte Badger.
2: So the narrative we've spelled out so far is sort of the traditional story of Charlotte Badger, and it's a really cool story, which is you know a convict woman um, ends up in Australia, is shipped over to Tasmania. Is somehow involved. We don't know exactly how involved in a mutiny, ends up in New Zealand, lives among Maori for some length of time, and then escapes and has to run off to Tonga and stays there for many years. And presume we we vanishes into the mist yeah. of history. or may after have been that.
3: on may have been on her way to America.
2: But there are a few problems with this traditional narrative, and that's um, yeah. that's what Jennifer <laughs> has actually been investigating. She's put her sort of historical detective hat on, and there are a couple of really Mm. big problems with that traditional story, and I think probably the biggest is Catherine Haggerty.
3: The real Catherine Haggerty arrives in Sydney in 1792. Um, She works for a judge um, called Atkins As, as his housekeeper. She has a child with him, a daughter. She has a... a, Earlier on, she has a son with another man. And in 1800, uh, Judge Atkins gets her a full pardon. Two weeks later, she gets on a boat and she goes to England. She leaves New South Wales. And I can't find any record of her ever going back to New South Wales. I can find uh, an application for her son, Henry to have him sent back to New South Wales to live with his stepfather, Judge Atkins. And I don't quite know why there was an application to send him back, but my suspicion is that maybe she had died. And so the local parish didn't want him as an expense and they they sent him to his his nearest uh, kin who would have been his stepfather. So this unfortunately suggests quite strongly that Catherine Haggerty was not actually in New South Wales in 1806.
2: The other big problem you've found is to do with Charlotte Badger, which is an even bigger problem given that Charlotte Badger is the whole point that we're yeah. telling the story. Yeah,
3: so if you look through uh, New South Wales census records, muster records because you know they they got convicts to kind of, you know, come and be counted. Uh, on a pretty regular basis, you can find Charlotte Badger living in New South Wales. Uh, Charlotte Badger, the, the convict who was um, convicted in Worcester Assizes, who was transported on the Earlcon er- Wallace, who arrived in 1801, you can find her living in New South Wales, in, or in Sydney, in 1811, and you can find her up until about the mid 1820s. In you know each sort of subsequent uh, census. And you can also find her in the um, church records marrying a soldier called Thomas Humphreys in 1811. What's more, you can also find um, a death notice in 1835 for a Mrs. Thomas Humphreys living in northwest Sydney, uh, who dies at the age of 55, which is, you know, how old she would have been.
2: Which is a significantly less exciting story. Than- <laughs> But but, but 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 there is a gap but. in the census record, which is which is really interesting. So in one census she's missing, and it and it passes and it matches exactly when the Venus it goes does, missing.
3: Yeah, because um, Samuel Marsden. There, I think there are two censuses actually in eighteen o six. There's a kind of standard muster, and then Samuel Marsden, who was obsessed with um, female convicts and their you know immoral behaviour, he. Um, he actually does a, fe- a, a count of female convicts. And that's done the month after the Venus disappears, I think. And she's in neither of those censuses. So she kind of she does disappear.
2: So we've got this tiny little sliver for the Charlotte Badger pirate story to be true, which is that she vanishes around this time and then maybe she comes back. She goes to New Zealand, decides it's not really her cup of tea, and comes back relatively quickly. But the thing is that if that happened she did it without causing any kind of fuss whatsoever yeah.
3: you know runaway convicts were a were a big issue they were a big problem um, you know Thomas Kendall when he was appointed you know when he when he came here as part of the CMS um, missionary one of his the jobs that the colonial government gave him was to report on runaways they were really really concerned about runaways so I would have thought that if, if, if somebody who had you know, been part of a piracy arrived back in New South Wales that, that would have made the news and that person would have faced further justice and there's no record of her facing any kind of further justice in New South Wales there's no mention of um, of her arriving back in the Sydney Gazette there's no mention in the court records uh, of anybody called Charlotte Badger ever facing any kind of um, disciplinary action
2: So just to um, pricey over what we've got here we've got a traditional story with a lot of, with, well not a lot, but a bit of evidence to back it up. We've got the um, accounts from Eber Bunker and a few other whalers who put Charlotte and the other members of the Venus in New Zealand. But then we've got this contradictory evidence which for one thing says that Catherine Haggerty was nowhere near Australia, let alone New Zealand. She wasn't even in this hemisphere. And we've got other evidence which suggests that if Charlotte was in New Zealand, she was here extremely briefly. And I guess the question to ask is, why do we bother investigating this story? Like, why are we ruining the fun? <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, all I can sort of talk about is why, um, is why I'm interested in it. Although her story is an extraordinary story in a, in a lot of ways, she's also, in, in some other ways, um, a very typical person. You know, as I said at the beginning, she was a very typical convict. She's part of the majority of people who live life at the bottom of the heap, the bottom of society. She left behind absolutely no records of her own. She was illiterate. And we know this because in that church record in in 1811, when she gets married, she marks her name with with an X. So, you know, she's an an illiterate person.
2: She couldn't even sign her own name.
3: Couldn't sign her own name. So she's... She's one of um, I mean as I say, the overwhelming majority of people who have ever lived left behind nothing really of their own that we can grasp hold of
2: which, which is funny, right? It's like this sort of complete contrast we have between history and today, like in history, you only hear about the most famous people and you hear you know a lot about them, whereas today future historians are going to get Enormous amounts of stuff about uh, you know our history, all of us ordinary people's history.
3: Well, I almost pity historians of the future because they're just going to be overwhelmed um, by so much stuff, and so and so much of it is kind of ephemeral. Um, but the other thing that that interests me ab- about the story is is the actual is the unknowability of it. I, I think um, some people find that really incredibly frustrating. Most people want an answer. You know, they want to know what happened. And so often in history, we just don't have any idea. The thing that interests me about Charlotte's story is, well, you know, how how might we go about doing history differently so that we deal with what we don't know? I think of the impact of that group
4: taking the Venus and disappearing with it meant that the supplies on board that ship did not get to Port Dalrymple or Hobart town And two settlements were really, really desperate because of that. Um, But the other one is, when the Venus finally gets to New Zealand, and they're not good at navigating, so what was normally a week or two weeks sailing across the Tasman, we think they took nearly three months to do. And by then, they must have been running out of those supplies. So they come into Tipuna Inlet here. And Catherine Haggerty... Charlotte Badger and the two blokes and the daughter jump ship here. So who's left on board the ship? Take on board some Maori women of high birth. Those of you from Northland might know Moringa. His power is by State Highway 10 over there. His sisters were taken on that ship. And they sail down our coast and they end up dumping those women off the east coast who were not very good to those women. One of the outcomes is serious Tawa leaving the north here, out of Tipuna Inlet, where Charlotte was, but maybe not at that time. We don't know. Missionaries record it. And going south and beating the hell out of those people. Sorry about my language. Escalation of the so-called musket wars, because the ships are now trading in those things. The people like George Bruce, maybe Charlotte, others who are living amongst them, are really good mediators. That's how they get useful and survive. So we have got something else going on in the New Zealand scene which has had huge impact in our country, which is another part of the story that we need to get to understand a hell of a lot better. Excuse my language again. What happened to the Venus and the other guys on it? Sunk. Those people went ashore and were never seen again. They did not have a nice end. It was grisly. We know that. So there's a whole lot of stories of each and, one, each and every one of those 11 people who disappeared from Port Dalrymple on the Venus.
2: The, other, the last sort of thing I want to talk about, I guess, before we start wrapping up, is the way this story has evolved. And we've got into that a little bit, about how even in the 90 years between the Venus going missing and you know the, the first article going that sort of summarised everything together. And since as we've indicated, there have been multiple reinterpretations and each one of them plays up Charlotte Badger's role more and more and more. And I just find that really interesting. Like, we don't, we don't see many women in history who their role gets escalated rather than minimised. Yeah. Why do we think that is?
3: You know, I'm not... I, I, I've been thinking about this over the last week and I'm particularly struck by the fact that um, th- that real escalation... Um, Happened in the 1930s in a women's supplement and you know women's supplements were often uh, you know good housekeeping really and um
2: you know this is a little bit of a historical aside but in ancient Greece the most, I think the second most popular um, item in Greek vase painting after Hercules is Amazons and the Greeks were a massively patriarchal society And yet they have this real thing for sort of these emancipated warrior women. And maybe this is a little bit of what's going on in the 1930s, that maybe we don't want to model our society on these women, but we really like hearing about them. That makes such a really good story. I'm
4: I'm thinking of this image. Go back to the 1930s and have a look at what was happening in Hollywood. Mm. Yeah, We've got women dressing as men and being pirates you know, and, and it, you know, it's the Hollywood side of it, which I really enjoy, but I also really, really get much more passionate about the real history, the grunty stuff, and trying to get my head into the real person and the real whole circumstances.
2: Yeah. I still do think it's interesting, though, that this sort of, you can sort of use this, the way that this story is reinterpreted over time as sort of a cipher, because yes. you've got, the original story which is very much playing up the role of the men the women in the, in the 1890s the women are just sort of laughing and carrying on and putting buckets on their heads and oh isn't it very funny they're getting drunk and they're sort of leading the men astray a little bit in the in the 1930s you've got the women seeing a little bit more emancipated maybe a little bit more of that 1980s. Hollywood thing 1980s yeah. you've got this play <laughs> which we just played for a bit of you which is very bodice ripping and very sort of dramatic and all that kind of thing And even more recently, you've got this, which is a novel which I would consider a very modern feminist take on the Charlotte Badger story. It portrays Charlotte and Catherine Haggerty as sort of comrades in arms. They've got, they try and put them in a historical perspective, but they've got very modern motivations. And you can really see what's being put in them through sort of modern eyes. Yeah, and I
3: think that's, you know, that's one of the things about. about history, we tend to think that, that history is this kind of immovable object. And in actual fact, it's not. It, it kind of, what, what we find interesting and the way that we see history, what we choose to study, says a lot about us. In fact, it, often it says more about us than it does about the past. So the way that that story gets retold, what, the bits that we find interesting, the bits that we play up, the bits that we play down... Are a reflection of what's going on with us a lot of the time. And, I, and that's what accounts for that change, you know, and the, the telling of that story. Because there's a point at which it's not actually a, really about Charlotte herself, it's about what, what the story that we want to tell.
2: Special thanks to Jennifer Ashton and Kate Martin and extra special thanks to the team at Charlotte's Kitchen for hosting us. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcasting app you enjoy. You can also subscribe via the RNZ app which is available both for iPhones and Android. If you're looking for more great content to listen to try out some of RNZ's other great podcasts one I really recommend, again is Eyewitness, which has a new series out now. In their first episode they talked to Pete Bethune about the sinking of the 80 Gill, which you might remember was sunk in a confrontation with Japanese whalers back in 2009. Next time on Black Sheep, the story of an arsonist who terrorised the city of Auckland.
0: My best guess is that he was a victim of the social pressure. He he wanted to become part of the upper stratum of Auckland society, and he failed in every regard. And uh, I think that this caused him to develop an absolute fixation against the one man in particular that he saw as responsible for his failure, uh, that he identified Thomas Russell in particular as the root cause of his devastating fall from grace and was determined to avenge himself on him. And he did this in the most bizarre and ultimately, for him, disastrous way.
2: Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. Our production manager is Adam McCauley. Our sound engineer was Blair Stagpole. And our executive producer is Tim Watkin. We had voice acting help from Adam McCauley, Linda Chanwai-Earl and Duncan Smith.